so just a couple of quick thoughts. Um, number one, uh, my vision has always been for Hope Church to be a church that serves our community, loves our community, and does things like this uh, night shine, partnering with schools. And I think that's something that we're going to continue to do as a church. It's just part of who we are. It's our DNA. We want to be a church that doesn't take from the community but gives back to the community. The second thing I want to tell you is this. Um, I had a number of people come up to me after that event and basically say to me, this is the best thing I think I've ever done in my life. So uh, it, I just encourage you, set that date aside. There's millions of ways you can help. And so we'd love to see you participate in that. So we are, Mark said, we are in a series. Uh, we're, the idea of the series is this, and if you're watching, join us online. Welcome. We're glad that you're with us today. Um, but let me just say this. We wanted to do a series that kind of helped in a number of ways because uh, you may have heard Mark say, we're going to go through the book of Hebrews, and you go, well, I don't even know what the Hebrew book of Hebrews is. Well, if you're one of those people, you're in the right place. Or if you're watching, you're, you're in the right place. Because there's a lot of people that don't. We call these letters epistles, or, you know, basically of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the book of Acts. And then we have these letters. It starts with Romans. You have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And we've been talking about 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus and Philemon last weekend. And now we come to the book of Hebrews. The idea here is to get, kind of give you a big picture view or the puzzle, give you the full puzzle picture of what the book is about and then jump into a specific passage of the book and for something that we can take home with us, right? And so the idea here is if you don't know anything about the book of Hebrews, you will when you leave and hopefully you'll have a challenge from God and his spirit today. So that's essentially where we're going to go. So if you would, turn in uh, the book uh, of Hebrews towards the end of your Bible. And uh, let me just give you some background information for the book of Hebrews so you can kind of understand it a little better. Um, we don't really know who the author was. There were a number of commentators, and still are, that believe Paul was the author. I don't really think so. And uh, he may have been, but that's not really a, a really super important point. The, uh, the people that, uh, is, that it's written to are kind of a second generation of Christians, and they're under persecution, and they're, they're struggling. And so the writer is trying through all of this letter to encourage people who are under persecution not to walk away. Um, he, he encourages them to hang in there and not walk away from Jesus. Uh, one of the more famous chapters that you may have heard of is Hebrews 11. Uh, Hebrews 11 has what we call, some commentators have called it the heroes of the faith, you know. And you, you look at that chapter, and you can read through it later today, and you go, man, I don't know if that guy's really, a, or that person's really a hero, right? Um, but they showed faith, and that phrase is used over, by faith, by faith, by faith. Abraham, you know, Moses, different people are listed in that. Um, the writer probably wrote this letter before the destruction of Jerusalem because we don't really have a mention of it, but uh, there's persecution. There's things going on there. Um, let, me just, let me just talk a little bit about how God reveals himself. God reveals himself in a number of ways. Number one, he reveals himself through his creation. We go out in the world and we say, wow, what a beautiful world, what a beautiful creation. Uh, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Right? 
So we see that. Secondly, God reveals himself through our own inner conscience. There's a point within us that says that there's somebody, there's something greater to our life, that we're part of something bigger, that there's a right and wrong uh, written on our hearts, that we know when something is right and when something's wrong. There's a conscience within us. Um, the, the third thing is that we have God's word, uh, the Bible. We're looking at it right now, God's revealed word. And it's not just written by men, it's written by God. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Peter that men didn't just sit down and write, but God superintended the process so that we have his written word. And then finally, the book of Hebrews, it says, and God has spoken to us through his son. And that's what we want to look at. So uh, turn in your Bibles for a moment to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, let me read starting at verse 1. And one of the things you'll notice immediately from the book of Hebrews is it doesn't have the, the, the general, it, we generally have a, a greeting from Paul and maybe a few of his uh, co-workers to the churches of, it, it doesn't have any of that. There's no salutation. There's no greeting there. It jumps right into it from the beginning. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in high. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is superior to theirs. So let me just give you kind of a, an overview, an outline of the book of Hebrews. This is the argument or the, the logical flow of the book, if you will. Um, basically, the gist of it is Jesus is better Okay, so Jesus is better than the angels. Well, why is he better than the angels? Because the angels are created beings. The angels uh, were created beings. They were made by God. The angels gather around the throne. Jesus is the one who sits on the throne. Jesus is the one the angels bow down to. So Jesus is greater than the angels, and you see that in chapter 1. In chapter 3, he says Jesus is better than Moses. Moses built the tabernacle. He built the place where God's presence was. But the presence of God is Jesus. God is Jesus. And Jesus, the house that Moses built, was for God, for Jesus. Uh, the priesthood, we look at Hebrews chapter 7. And we think of the priest that would come, come with the various offerings. And then once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer blood from a spotless, perfect sacrifice on the altar. Once a year, at once a year, the high priest would do that on the Day of Atonement. And we remember the text in John where Jesus says what about Jesus? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus became the final sacrifice, right? He became the final lamb. Um, we think of the Mosaic Covenant. 
the Mosaic Covenant where Moses brought down the, the tablets and he brought down the Ten Commandments and the law and, and that the law was meant to be followed. And really, Paul talks about this in Romans where he says that the law was really meant to show us that we can't keep the law, that we all sin, we all fail, that we all fall short of God's glory. And there's only one person that fully, completely kept the law, and it's Jesus Christ. He who, who knew no sin became sin for us. He perfectly followed the law. And then we think of the Levitical sacrifices. Um, Jesus not only is the perfect sacrifice, but he was the high priest. He came in and offered, but he offered himself. He was the one who became the high priest who takes away the sins of the world. And, and so the command of the book of Hebrews is this. During this present age, uh, age, while it is still called today, we're encouraged to persevere and to help others persevere. Now, um, basically the gist of Hebrews is only those who remain true to the faith will enter into the rest. Okay? So the question comes up, and this is often happens in the book of Hebrews, uh, is can a Christian lose their salvation? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Um, the book of Hebrews contains a number of what we call warning passages. Uh, you can find them in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 12. I want to read the one from chapter 6 for a minute, and then I want to talk about that. Uh, because I think it's important for us to think through this. Uh, it's a really important topic. It's, it's, it divides uh, the Wesleyan Arminian church from the, the Reformed Calvinistic church. You know, the, these are the passages they very, you know, differ on. But let me read you the passage so you can get an un understanding of what's going on here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the miracles of the coming age, and then have committed apostasy, or they have turned away from all of that, that's what apostasy means, to renew them again to repentance, since they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and holding him up to contempt. So essentially what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is when you come and you've experienced so much of the gospel and yet you turn your back on it and you walk away, you, 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 you walk away from it, there's no returning. So essentially some scholars say this is a passage that's showing that you can lose your salvation. Okay? Now, others are saying, no, this is just showing that you can become very, very embedded into Christianity and the culture of Christianity and still be lost. For instance, there's a troubling passage in the book of Matthew at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where uh, Jesus says, many will come to me on that day. We cast out demons. We did this all in your name. And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. We think of Judas who walked with Jesus and saw the miracles and yet betrayed him in the end. 
So what are we to make of all of this? Well, let me give you my take on this. I don't believe a, a, Christian, a true a Christian can lose their salvation. And, and here's what I think is going on with the warning passages. What, what, what the writer is doing here is he's warning against apostasy. He's not saying that they have committed it. It's not saying they have walked away. He's saying there's a danger that they, they, if they do, this is what will happen. Here's the point. We need to remember this, that we are saved not because of anything that we have done. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. That's our salvation. The only thing we bring to the table is that we are lost, we are helpless, and we are hopeless. So, not only are we saved by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, we are kept by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. We're not just saved, but we're kept by that. In other words, we did nothing to earn it or deserve it, and we do nothing to preserve it. It is all of God. Now, the real question that I think we should ask is, because some of you are saying, I have a family member that walked an aisle. I have a family member that raised a hand. I had a family member that five years ago, they were on fire for Jesus, but today they're not. What about them? And I would just say this to you. Number one, God, only God knows a person's heart. And I don't presume to judge anyone's heart. But in the end, the proof is in the pudding. I, when I deal with people and, who are struggling in this area, I, I don't ask them, what did you do? Did you walk an aisle? Did you pray a prayer? Did you do? I want to know, where is your heart today? And ask yourself that question right now. Where is your heart today? Is your heart in a place where you say, I want to follow Jesus. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. Now, we're not talking about perfection, okay? So let's just shove that aside. But we're saying, is that your desire today? Because that really is what is critical. Not what you did in the past, but where is your heart today? Okay. So let's talk about where we want to just kind of draw a lesson for our lives today. Um, look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to just read the first three verses here in Hebrews 12. He says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. What is this cloud of witnesses that he's talking about? What comes before chapter 12? Chapter 11. What's chapter 11? The heroes of the faith, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith. And basically what the writer is saying is we have all these faithful people who hung in there, who showed faith, who carried it out to the end. Ultimately, they exercised faith. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such this great cloud of witnesses, let us also hold firm to our faith. That's essentially what he's saying here. Now let's go on. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, 
excuse me, marked out, yeah, for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the question we want to talk about as we finish our time together is, how do we keep going when the going gets tough? Or maybe better, how do we suffer well? We have to trust God's plan, even if it's not yours. That's the first thing. I think sometimes as Christians, we feel that our life should be comfortable, pain-free, and fulfilling. As American Christians, I think that's kind of the norm, right? Now, I don't know where we got that view from, but it wasn't from the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures has nothing to say about that. This may be the majority belief of American Christianity, but it's not the teaching of the Scriptures. We have brothers and sisters all over the world, China, South America, Africa, that are suffering today. Suffering is a lot that they understand is a part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Living a comfortable, fulfilling, trouble-free life is not part of their script. The vast majority of the world sees suffering as a normal part of life for now here on earth. We American Christians don't like it. We don't think it's fair. We don't think it's uh, our lot. But, but I don't know where we get it from because, after all, what did they do to Jesus? They crucified him. What did they do to his followers? Well, they killed him. <laughs> what did they do with the early Christians? Well, they found him the lions. Why do we think that we're exempt from all of that? I don't understand where we get it. But we still do that, don't we? Here's the one thing we can be assured of, that God loves us. And that whatever he sends our way is for our good. That we can trust him. The good times and the bad times. Now, why would God allow us to go through suffering? I mean, why would he? Well, Jesus said, interestingly enough, he said, in the world you'll have what? Tribulation. You'll have trouble. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge. And it is. But your faith, your commitment, your patience, your compassion, your courage will never grow unless it's tested, unless it's pushed, unless it's, it's, it's put under pressure, right? You, you know that if you're an athlete, training requires pain, it requires suffering, it requires taxing yourself. And in the same way, if you want these traits to grow in your life, they will not grow until they're put under pressure. I like how um, John Newton wrote it. He said, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. And, and there are times that maybe you prayed for something and God said no. And maybe you're thinking, well, I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to ask God why he didn't give me that. And God's going to say, well, you were a little boy asking for a, a big knife. So I said, no. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, one of the things that Christians don't do well today, American Christians, we don't suffer very well. We howl at the moon. Why me? Why, Lord? Where have you gone, God? And I am not trying to diminish suffering and pain at all. I am just asking the question, if Jesus said, prepare yourself because you're going to go through suffering and trials and tribulations, and if you follow me, people aren't going to welcome you with open arms. Your own family members are going to reject you, so why are we surprised by it? Why do we feel that God has abandoned us when the exact thing that he warned us about is happening? We could be such bright lights because the world's not getting brighter. It's getting darker. It's getting colder. It's getting more distant. It's getting more corrupt. And we have the opportunity to shine brighter and how we respond to people who are bad and evil and mean, to a world that's getting darker, to suffering and pain. I think of an illustration I heard a number of years ago. Horatio Stratford is a successful lawyer in Chicago, and he built a, you know, built a business in Chicago and was doing well, and he's married to his wife, Anna. And in 1873, um, actually 1871, his son, uh, he had a, a son and three daughters, and his son died of scarlet fever, which is just awful. You, if you've ever lost a child, you can understand how they felt. I, I can't even relate to it. I couldn't even go there. But he lost a child. And then shortly after that, the Chicago fire hit, and he lost most of his properties. They were destroyed, as most of Chicago was. And so uh, a, a short time later, his wife took his three daughters, and they decided to go, to Europe, go over to Europe and kind of gather themselves and get, you know, just try to figure out what they were going to do. And on the way, uh, on the boat, on the way out, Anna and the three daughters the, their boat ran into another boat, and the boat sunk. And Anna was saved, and she, when she made it back uh, to Europe, she sent a telegram, and it only had two words. The two words were, saved alone. Can you imagine losing your son? Losing three of your daughters, losing all. It sounds like something out of the book of Job. Horatio got on a boat, obviously, to be with his wife. And as he was coming to the place that they said that the accident took place and he lost his daughters. These are the words he wrote. Let me read them to you. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. You know the words from here, don't you? It is well, it is well with my soul. 
How in the world do you write those words when you've lost everything? You do it because you believe the one who loves you has a plan. You realize that life here and now is dark and dangerous and difficult. But there is another life coming. And there is a hope. The writer of Hebrews is saying to his audience, persecution is part of life. You will be persecuted if you love Jesus, if you follow him. Your own family may walk away. But hang in there. Now the question is why? Why should I hang in there? We have people who are deconstructing their faith today. They're walking away from Jesus. And and I just want to ask them a question. Let me make this pretty simple because we had a kind of a heavy moment there for a minute. So I'm I have uh, Carol and I and a few of our a couple of our boys are on the same cell phone plan. You're probably doing that thing now, right? So we're looking at getting on a different plan. Okay, I'm doing some research on that. Now you don't have to come up and tell me the best plan in the world because I don't really don't care. Thank you, but no thanks. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm looking around, okay? Now, if I have a pretty good plan right now, but I'm not looking for a plan that's worse. I'm not looking for a plan where I have to pay twice as much and, and have all these other entanglements. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a better plan. So if I leave my current plan, I'm leaving for something better. I don't understand why people who walk away from Jesus say, I'm done with him. I'm done with God and I'm done with Jesus. The suffering, the pain is too much. I just want to ask you a question. What are you walking to? What's so much better? What have you found that we've not found or even heard of? And by the way, if you walk away from Jesus, what is that going to do to help you in your pain and suffering and struggles? It isn't. I don't understand that. That's just me. But maybe you have an answer for that. I don't. The writer of Hebrews says, hang in there. Now why? Why do you hang in there? Well, that's the second point. Follow Jesus' example. He chose joy. Look at it. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're told to fix our eyes on Jesus and to follow his example. Now think about this. He is being crucified, probably one of the most painful, awful ways to die. And he was suffering, and people were jeering him. And instead of looking and focusing on his pain and his suffering and his struggle, he looked beyond that to the joy set before him. He was able to transform himself. Jesus focused on the big picture. He was able to elevate from his current suffering and see the bigger picture. He knew what the ultimate outcome would be if he held true and held firm. And that's the point of the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews is saying, just as Jesus held on and hung on for you and and stayed true for you, you do the same. Follow his example. 
He refused to focus on the here and now, and he saw the joy set before him. He hung in there for you and me. He stood pat. He pushed back against the pain and pressure. He didn't grow weary in well-doing. In a similar manner, we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. How you doing? I mean, come on. Let's be honest. Life is hard. Life is difficult. There's just struggles and there's suffering in life. That's just part of life. And, and, and the bottom line is, if you're going to live in this bubble that says, because I, I follow Jesus, my life's going to be fulfilling and, and fun and free and, and, and I'm never going to have... Tr- if you, you're, you're mistaken. That's not biblical. It's not even practical. It's nonsense. Here's the point. I often say, I don't say it that often, but I sometimes say to the staff, we can either howl at the moon, complain about how bad the world is and our lives are and different things like that. Not that the staff's sitting around saying how bad their lives are. That's not the point. But you, the point is you can howl at the moon and say how bad, the, or you can just say, It is what it is. Now, how am I going to shine? And how am I going to serve? And how am I going to move forward? And how am I going to take the next? What's the next step I need to take? Because I don't have enough energy to howl and bow at the throne at the same time. You can't howl at the moon and bow at the cross at the same time. You have to choose one. And Jesus on the cross looked ahead to the joy set before him, which was you and me. I don't understand that. But in the end, you get to choose how you suffer. You can trust Him and look for Him in your suffering, or you can walk away. But my question is, what are you walking away to? What is there out there that it gives you so much more hope than Jesus Christ? I don't know. You know, a famous psalm, and you know the psalm, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? We often hear the psalm read at funerals, but really it's for the living. And essentially it's what the psalmist is saying is you'll go through those dark valleys. Those dark valleys are part of this life. But when you go through those dark valleys, don't question, why am I in a dark valley? Instead, look for the one who you'll meet there. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You're not alone. Jesus hung in there for you. He looked to the joy set before him. The writer of Hebrews says, follow his example. He gives you the perfect example of how to suffer well. And I believe as Christians, we need to learn how to suffer well. We could learn lessons from our Christian brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering every day. And they might look at us and go, I'm sorry, I don't get it. Can, can you just stand with me and let's just, let me pray and close our time. Father, thank you for 
Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the beginning and the end, the one who hung in there for us because of a joy that he set before him. He delayed gratification. He didn't pay attention to those jeering at him or the pain, but went through it because he knew what it would mean for us. May we follow his example. May we understand that you have a plan and a purpose, even for the pain and the suffering and the difficult times, that though we may be surprised, you're not. May we suffer well. May we burn brightly as our world gets darker. And may the light of the gospel shine through us in our words, in our deeds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.